Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott. I am joined today by Drew. Hello there. And Craig. Hello. And today we are taking a look at the work of one Mr. Edgar Wright. Why? Because we could use a laugh, and I think we can all appreciate that in this time. So, I uh, don't think we need to spend an awful lot more time introducing the man. We'll just go straight in with a look at his first feature film, I suppose you could call it, um, with a fistful of fingers. Uh, Drew, would you like to take us away in that one? Well, well it's his first film and it's feature length, so I'm not sure how else you would describe it, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, as Scott said, Edgar Wright's directing career began way back in 1995 with A Fistful of Fingers, a budget of $15,000 and a cast of mates. It is, as the title no doubt has already told you, a spaghetti western spoof, with our erstwhile hero, no name, replete with poncho, cigar and totally authentic Eastwood accent, (laughs) setting out to earn the bounty in a killer known as The Squint. On the way, he will meet the Tonto-esque Native American guide known as Running Sore, who will become his companion for the rest of the film. As an aside, because it, it seemed relevant watching this film... There is nothing inherently wrong with using makeup to make someone appear to be of another ethnicity, for impersonation, parody or disguise. But a whole bunch of pale-skinned people have used blackface and brownface over the years to ridicule, denigrate and even steal jobs from people of darker hue to the extent that, however innocent the motivation, it's simply now beyond the pale, pun not intended, for white people to wear darker skin makeup. So it's quite uncomfortable to watch parts of A Fistful of Fingers, though the fact that it is a send-up of Western tropes and, not insignificantly, the paucity of Native American actors available on a tiny budget in Somerset in 1995 <laughs> leave me feeling that it's a worst poor judgement and not malice. Still, though, <laughs> uh, there's, not, there's not much more to the film than that, plot-wise, anyway. Uh, by the time of 2004, Shaun of the Dead, Wright would have learned to use jokes to tell the story, but here it's rather a case of having a story just to tell jokes. And they're largely schoolboy jokes at that. I watched this with some trepidation, as you might imagine, given its minuscule budget, almost total obscurity, and the fact it would be another nine years before Wright returned to big screen direction, and I was wondering, well, there's a good reason for that. But I was hoping to see something from the Edgar Wright origin story. And, well, I got a fair bit of that, I'm pleased to say. I couldn't describe A Fistful of Fingers as good, but it's not exactly bad either. It certainly wears its influences on its sleeves, most notably Monty Python and the Holy Grail, with its fourth wall breaking, deliberate anachronisms and ersatz horses. And it also (laughs) feels at times like Bugsy Malone the Western. But there's still a lot of inventiveness here, and not all of the humour is juvenile. And actually, I do admit to having laughed at the utterly, utterly tortured Sooty, Swahip and Sue joke, <laughs> though probably because it was so very tortured. On its release, Derek Ellie of Variety wrote, A Fistful of Fingers shows more wit and invention than most of its no-budget Brit saddle mates. As a technical accomplishment, the pick announces a precocious talent in 20-year-old Edgar Wright. And I don't disagree. You can see the beginnings of what Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz would go on to do so well, playing with, and within, the tropes and clichés of a genre, but with an understanding of and fondness for that genre, and some of the trademark visual storytelling and comic editing that are the director's trademarks. That there isn't more of that editing is due to the fact, as Wright has lamented in interviews, 
there wasn't anything else to cut to. <laughs> it certainly has a lot more polish than you would expect from a 20-year-old first-time director, particularly in the pre-internet days, and it looks pretty good for $15,000. It's probably only for completionists, and anyone else can safely forget about it, but it's not wholly uninteresting, and does get bonus points for a totally unexpected cameo at the end. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, I... well... I figured we wouldn't be able to get a hold of this because it's not readily commercially available, but the internet is a strange and wonderful place and it's easy enough to get a hold of if you know the appropriate search terms, those being a fistful of fingers movie. Not even a torrent, it's streaming on one website or another. And um, yeah, I kind of dipped into it at points and went, hmm, not sure about this. But when I actually sat down and watched it all in one go, um, it's actually reasonably entertaining. I, it, It's clearly, obviously, miles below everything we've got to talk about. But in terms of it just being a straight up, I, I thought very Zucker, Abrams, a naked gun type influence. Yeah, there's a fair that. bit of that in there too, Scar, because yeah, I agree uh, with you with there. Yeah, I felt there was a lot of that uh, running through it, and taken as that, it's relatively funny. Um, I laughed a fair amount through it. Um, yeah, we could criticise it for a number of things. The you know appropriation, as you mentioned already, um, the fact that you know there's areas of Spain and Italy that can suitably represent the the plains or high desert. Somerset, not so much. <laughs> so as a western, it takes place pretty much entirely in a forest. Um, but uh, it, it's inventive enough, it's funny enough, it's got lots of gags that sort of swing between actually quite funny and overtly cringeworthy, which makes for kind of interesting enough viewing. And uh, yeah, for, as a way to spend an hour and a 20 minutes, it's not that long, is it? Don't, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually worth a look in. Um, again, as you say, for completionists only, it is a cut below everything else we'll talk about. And clearly when he went off and between this and did Spaced uh, clearly learned a lot of tricks of the trade at that yes. point and it's a very different style you'll see from Spaced onwards as compared to this but yeah it's an interesting little curate's egg and if you are uh, happy with the more readily available um, right stuff then it's probably worth taking a quick look at this just for out of idle curiosity if nothing else yeah I think um, Spaced is really where he earned his stripes uh, you can see that. I mean, you can see that the idea behind this is clearly it's like a bunch of friends coming together, like let's stuff as much in as we can. Mm-hmm. But for all that, it's considerably more professional looking than you would expect. Yes, given yes. that's the case, and they seems to have made that fifteen thousand dollars stretch quite far because that doesn't buy a lot of sixty millimeter film. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I get your Zucker Brothers reference. Like that none shall pass joke is very Zucker Brothers. Yeah. I actually I found that the setting didn't bother me as much as a as you might have thought that yes clearly it's not much like the southwest of the USA but it's, it's not it, really trying to it's, no, it doesn't really make the, much of a difference yeah there were one or two points though where it looks enough like some of the kind of mountain passages you might see in films set in that region. Uh, like just enough that it doesn't look so stupid um, and yeah but again this what they have in terms of location and money and stuff that what else they're going to do but I'm sure I've seen less convincing settings um, yes witness any relatively low budget science fiction movie from the 80s to the 90s um, <laughs> which, which we covered yes yeah um, 
very few cardboard walls in this. It was they did actually have like proper buildings to shoot in and things like that. So yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting. You you can see the glimmerings of of talent there and like mm-hmm. kind of some of the the begins the trademarks. I've seen much worse debut uh, features. So, oh yes. yes, I've seen much worse things from people who've been working for forty years. So yes, yes, yes. Uh, let's move on though. We've, we're not we're, we're film podcast. Well, I guess we're not going to talk about space. We'll just mention it. It's a Channel Four sitcom. It ran for two series, nineteen ninety nine to two thousand or two thousand two thousand one. Around about then. Sounds about right. With Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and all the episodes directed by Edgar Wright. It's kind of where their friendship and their on-screen and off-screen partnership really started. It's the start of Nick Frost and uh, Simon Pegg on screen together. And it's also what, in a way, gave, ri- gave rise to Shaun of the Dead, uh, it being inspired by one of the episodes. So we'll move on to Shaun of the Dead then. Yes, uh, which Edgar Wright uh, co-writes. This the first in the Three Flavours Cornetto trilogy with Peg, and can be fairly succinctly described as you mentioned the space with zombies, and there's a whole episode that is basically just the pilot for this, I suppose. And Well, I suppose that makes sense as long as you've seen that Channel 4 sitcom. Um, otherwise, sitcom romance in a zombie apocalypse will have to do you as a recap, I suppose. Uh, before the dead start walking the earth, we are introduced to High Street Electronic Outlet Sales Assistant Sean Peg, in the midst of his utterly familiar daily routine. The daily bus ride to work is filled with the half-asleep and the slog through work filled with a half-witless... Then, quite piped down the local with his slob of a fat mate, Eric, played by Nick Frost, his girlfriend Liz, Kate Ashfield, who's pining for a more interesting and stimulating life, and also her flatmates, the objectionable David, Dylan Moran, and the agreeable Diane, Lucy Davis. And I'm sure for a majority of people, certainly those who've been sold into the wage slavery of modern-day working, this will seem like a familiar setup. Admittedly, perhaps not right now. But yeah. uh, business picks up when the uh, when overnight the sleepy English suburbs are overrun by the old-school lurching, flesh-chomping inconveniences that are zombies, and while many of the best gags come from Sean and Ed's blind ignorance of the zombie menace as they recover from a, heavy, a night of heavy drinking caused by the breakdown of Sean and Liz's relationship, it's not long before the two decide to take on the zombies, save Liz, David, Diane, Sean's mum, Barbara, played by Penelope Bilton, and stepdad Philip, played by Bill Nye. Now, a lot of the most obvious humour in Shaun of the Dead comes from taking a rather more grounded look at how ordinary Joes would respond to such a crisis rather than the usual horror movie tropes and or becoming an action hero overnight. Uh, on that basis, it's funny enough, although as with my first viewing through, if you can only take that surface reading of it, then it's a fine enough comedy to be worth a look. However, for podcast reasons, I've since seen a lot more of the films that this affectionately prods fun at, as well as having seen it a few more times now, and it's certainly pulled itself up a couple of notches in my estimation from that first viewing uh, back in the day, um, not only for cleverly twisting the films that it's drawing from into amusing pretzels, but also for baking a rich and dense dough with quick throwaway gags and easter eggs that ward repeat viewing, as well as genre affectionados. Now, it's not my favourite of the Cornettos, but the more I watch of it, the less of a delta there is between this and Hot Fuzz, uh, in my estimation, and I would certainly recommend it very widely, and of course, in particular to horror movie fans in general. We've spoken about this film a at least once before, and I think in our previous podcast as well. So we have... I probably won't spend too much on it and say that I quite like it. It is quite funny, and you can certainly see more than this than in Fistful of Fingers, the sort of Edgar Wright style. Um, lots of quick cuts and zooms and sort of really densely packed gags, lots of things to unfold in it. And uh, yeah, it's just really quite enjoyable. And uh, 
routinely mentioned as probably the best um, kind of horror comedy type thing up there with the, the Evil Dead 2 and, and well, probably just that. And yeah, it's certainly well worth viewing and uh, yeah, get it, get it seen if you've not done it already. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty much the gold standard horror comedy. Not that there are all that many of them. Um, because the other ones at least tend to fail both in horror and a comedy. Uh, <laughs> it's um, and yeah, it's got to be pretty high up for quality pastiche as well. Um, yeah, not quite hitting the thought of those states. I just, I, I, I was like fairly. I was going to say nonplussed by this at first, but that's not fair. I thought it was reasonable, but like you, Scott, with like more knowledge. Um, I've actually become I've come to appreciate this a lot more. Yeah, uh, and then even just like the just the technical aspects, for the most part, Edgar Wright hasn't gone out of his way to dissuade people from the idea that this was his debut feature, and you yeah. can see why yeah. because it would have been a hell of an accomplished debut feature. It's just it's yeah, it's got a clever script because there's all that foreshadowing there. It's, I, I don't know, because we covered it on our Zombies podcast a couple of years ago. I'm not going to go into too much into either, but a lot of foreshadowing in the dialogue, but stuff that would just seem entirely reasonable, normal yeah. stuff, unless you knew what it meant. And it's, uh, it's like really great, the scene transitions and the clever editing, and then it's that, like for instance, the little fun sequence of Sean sitting, changing the channels on the TV, but it's still managing to spell out the story of what's actually happening. Yeah, it's a really quite clever because like, that serves both a narrative function and a comedy function, and it's really well done. Yeah, and it's also um, there's a lot of Edgar Wright stuff. I noticed watching all these again in quick succession too. What well, is that? He does a really good job, um, and you know, the script helps too. But it's generally, he's involved with him and Simon Pegg for a lot of them, but. They do do a lot of storytelling visually. You know, they don't feel they don't have to spell things out to the audience. Yes, um, he treats his audience with some sort of modicum of intelligence. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, so there, there is that, like, just like you, you show a picture or something, it's like, right, I get that, and it's not have to be drawn attention to or spelled out of anything. Um, and right, there are certain situations in films where you'd have to have a dialogue to explain it if something complex is happening. But he seems to be so acutely aware that cinema is a visual medium. So he thinks, yeah. hmm, maybe I'll let pictures do the storytelling where I can. And it's it's really notable watching them all again. It's quite a session, as I said. Uh, and yeah, it's the first real example of his, uh, well, film-wise, anyway, there's some of it in space, although not as much. It's, space is a bit more conventional. But uh, of his ability to choreograph action with music, um, which is often really funny. It's also very entertaining. Again, like I mentioned before in their other podcast, John in the pub when the plain queen and hitting him with the pool cues. It's mm. just it's so entertainingly done, um, and that's a, a real trait that goes through all these films. Uh, yeah, it's it's really fun. I like it much more now than I did at first. And I thought it was not bad at first. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of care in there. There's um, a lot of knowledge to about the genre they're taking the mickey out of. Uh, although I, I find I still don't know if dogs can look up or not. <laughs> it fails to answer this question. 
I think um, I, I wouldn't have a lot to add to what you're saying. I think it's uh, I think it's his dependency on visual storytelling that makes the repeat reviewing so rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I've only seen Shaun of the Dead maybe three times or so, and I didn't I didn't rewatch it recently for this this podcast because I haven't necessarily had the time. But um, I, it's it's my second favourite of his canon, and I think we're probably all heading in the same direction as to what our first favourite would be. And in the instance of that film, also, I would say the same about this: is I think his work is the strongest where he is lampooning the sort of everyday aspects of British life within a, a broader context of you know, some sort of genre movie so it's, yeah. it's very obvious that he's got a great deal of affection for the place we all come from I, I would say more specifically English life but I think you can expand that a little yeah. more broadly to the British experience It's not hugely different in the broad strokes I don't no, think No, and I think that's I think that's where he's the strongest and that's that's the primary reason why I find this, this, this has just got an awful lot more heart than um, some of his other work and we'll, we'll talk more about his more, I guess you could say Americanised um, uh, works as bigger budget stuff but I don't think it's any real surprise that I find his his UK set films far more enjoyable and rewarding in that sense, but yeah, I wouldn't necessarily add uh, a lot more to what you've got to say. I I haven't particularly watched a great deal of the movies that would have informed this, but I think that if anything, then bears testament to how much I have enjoyed watching this. That without having that background mm-hmm. knowledge necessarily or the depth of it, that I still found it to be a rewarding experience, which kind of suggests that it's a pretty well made film. I think that Shaun of the Dead is one of those films that's well served, certainly by the general cultural osmosis of like touchstone zombie films. Uh, yes, there, there are tropes that I've probably seen enough. Yeah, so much other culture, TV, video games, other films too. That you, I think you've got, you can pick up on a lot of the stuff, mm-hmm. and it's for aficionados the the smaller stuff. But yeah, I think. Um, Scott and I have both had the benefit of having done that zombies episode a couple of years ago mm. where we watched all of um, all of these zombie films and really got like oh right so that's what that's about yeah um, and it just it makes you appreciate it more I think I don't I don't think I, I don't think my wife has ever watched another zombie movie and she loves Shaun of the Dead so I suspect that also speaks to the fact that that, that extra element that extra layer is there if you are if you are more broadly educated in that genre of film then yes. clearly you will get more from it but I wouldn't want to suggest that you know not having that knowledge should put you off wanting to watch it because it's not really a zombie movie at heart I suppose um, it's, uh, it, it operates well enough on the level just purely of emotional storytelling to be satisfying regardless of whether you have that uh, inverted commas education um, or otherwise so yes a very good a very good movie indeed shall we move on then to hot fuzz why not yes so we're still in loving pastiche territory with Wright's next film hot fuzz an ode to and send up of action comedies and buddy cop movies the stars against Simon Pegg who plays Sergeant Nicholas Angel, a poster boy officer in the Metropolitan Police, who is so good he is, to put not too fine a point on it, making everyone else look bad. (laughs) To save his fellow and less productive officers from further embarrassment, Angel is shipped off to the sleepy town of Sanford, um, here played by Wright's hometown of Wells. The -the by-the-book Angel is frustrated at the lazy fair attitude the town's police force, sorry, police service, 
which includes Paddy Constantine, Olivia Coleman and Jim Broadbent, takes to crime and punishment. However, as crime in this West Country backwater seems to be largely confined to shoplifting and underage drinking, perhaps it doesn't matter too much. And, after all, it's all for the greater good. <laughs> the greater good. <laughs> Broadbent's Inspector Butterman informs Nicholas that there hasn't been a recorded murder in the town for 20 years and that it has one of the lowest crime rates in the country, despite the crusty jugglers. <laughs> crusty jugglers. Rather, rather than being reassured by this, though, the good sergeant thinks that something is rotten in the state of Sanford and sets out to uncover the truth, helped by his new partner, Danny, Nick Frost. In a revelation that in no way at all parodies the small-mindedness and misplaced priorities of the villagers of Little England, it transpires that anyone who threatens to disrupt the town's idyllic nature, and more crucially, its chances of winning yet again the Village of the Year competition, is quietly... disappeared. For the greater good. The greater Greater good. good. (laughs) Fighting their willingness to believe that all of these murders are just accidents even the one where Angel saw the victim stabbed in the throat with garden shears. (laughs) Our heroic sergeant finally manages to persuade his fellow officers to take action, inviting the wrath of the NWA, that's the Neighbourhood Watch Association, who all turn out to be packing heat. This sets the scene for a final third that, like Shaun of the Dead, pays off many seemingly innocent bits of dialogue for the film's first half, and also manages to have better and more inventive action than most of the films from which Hot Fuzz draws its inspiration, made even more effective by its insight into the differences between US and UK crime and policing and their typical on-screen portrayal. The heart of the film is Peg and Frost, who by this point had honed their on-screen bromance that began in spaced into perfection and there's a substantial amount of joy to be had simply watching the two of them banter, and seeing Danny's naive idiocy and enthusiasm slowly wear down the tightly buttoned-up angel. Every part is well cast and well written, even the small roles, and everyone involved seems to get it, perhaps none more so than the delightfully villainous Timothy Dalton as the local <laughs> supermarket manager. Supermarché. <laughs> this is the best thing Timothy Dalton's ever bloody done. He's fantastic. Yes. Um, though Billy Whitelaw, Paul Freeman, Bill Bailey and Iwar Wuwar all stand out too. And there is even another layer of reference in much of that casting. It's full of visual gags and wonderful scene transitions and match cuts. Shaun of the Dead's editor Chris Dickens returns here, and it works both as a comedy and as an action film. It's not perfect. If there's a complaint, it's that it's, it's, it's a little too long, perhaps self-indulgently so. Maybe because Wright and Peg, who co-wrote the script, were too attached to some of their ideas. Certainly it has more endings than is necessary, something I have seen one writer suggest may have been the allusion to the return of the king, though I consider that a bit of a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) Only slightly, yeah. (laughs) But there there is a Revenge of the Sith reference, so it's not not out of the bounds of possibility. After multiple viewings, though, it still remains extremely entertaining, and that's what counts. I, I have very little to say about this other than I think it's a, 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 by by a country mile, again, no pun intended, um, Edgar Wright's best film. Um, and yes, I would I would refer back to what I said previously about his obvious affection for the, the, the ways of British life. Um, in particular, it's just nice to see that NIMBY attitude being being skewered here. Yes. But yeah, I think also it was, um, I think the, the numerous references to sort of Hong Kong action movies and stuff, this is, this is 
unlike Shaun of the Dead, where I'm not as familiar with the background material, I would suggest that um, I am this much is our more turf, fa- isn't it? Yeah, yeah yes. much much more familiar with the the a lot of the material that is that is being drawn on for inspiration here, and I. I Although I think this is clearly overall a better film than Shaun of the Dead, I think I also enjoyed it a great deal more because of a, a much uh, firmer understanding of those references. But um, I, I still don't think <laughs> I still don't think I've ever felt more more satisfied watching a film than I did with the the retort to fascist <laughs> of hag. <laughs> <laughs> and just it never gets boring the sight of sort of uh the sight of um little vill- village retirees wielding sten guns and stuff there's just there's, it's just so it's just so over the top that it, it oh yeah anyway yeah it's uh, before Scott's just um when you were talking about this like being and Scott was uh, echoing you that's like this being our sort of film uh what was quite amused to find though and I think Scott probably agree with me because we, we largely talked about this last time when we came to view Point Break again quite mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. we realised that Point Break, Point Break is absolute garbage yep. um, and <laughs> but it's great Point Break it's garbage is, but it's great it's not, it's just garbage um, <laughs> but the, the, the scene in Hot Fuzz that um, directly takes yes. a scene from Point Break is actually considerably more affecting and um, meaningful in Hot Fuzz than it comes from. You're not wrong. <laughs> oh dear. I won't be adding much to be honest. Um, it is my favourite of his films as you, as, you, as you say already. It's I don't think I'll ever tire of it. Um, I've seen it more than any of these other films and every time I watch it, it dissolves me into fits of giggles even with lines that I know are coming and I've heard many times before like what does it look like well it's a swan I almost forgot my other favourite part of this which is the just I think the most effective part of any of it and it's end up of action tropes as well is that leading into that final third drew where he arrives on horseback in the town <laughs> and you get the scene of all the locals eyeballing him and the, the mm. slow dramatic sort of build up of music and he dismounts his horse spits out his, mat- his matchstick and <laughs> you're expecting you're expecting some sort of uh, some smart arse one liner before the action kicks off and you get morning <laughs> <laughs> which it fits with the whole kind of English bobby thing doesn't it it's, it does I you just said hello hello or something <laughs> <laughs> I just think morning it's the most quintessentially British thing ever I say that about three times a day at the minute as we're walking through the village with the kids taking their little quarantine stroll every time you pass someone morning <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think tomorrow I'll take a matchstick. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the payoffs in that final third too, like the the bit when they because they're talking about like you know, you know there's more guns in the countryside than the city, and like who's everybody's got into even farmers' mums, and then it turns out there's like Kenneth Cranham's the farmer, his mum has a, <laughs> a shotgun at the end of the film, or something like that. <laughs> it's not wrong either. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, um, it's terrifically funny. I, I won't say. I, I don't, don't think I'll ever tire of it. It's incredibly well observed. Um, 
again, perhaps knowing the subject matter helps a little bit, but I think even if you don't, it's still an incredibly funny film. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's the high watermark for for me, for uh, Edgar Wright. So yes, highly recommended. And the, only th- the only caveat I would add is I would, I would like the opinion, especially if anyone's listening to this, I would like the opinion of specifically I think someone American as to what they think of this film as to whether that humour plays so well over there not being as familiar with the tropes of sort of daily British life yeah. I know it does for some people there's a, a couple podcasts I've listened to who who like a lot of British stuff like Doctor Who and various other things and some of them, one in particular, really, really loves Edgar Wright's stuff um, and really, really likes Hot Fuzz. So I think it does play. Maybe not everybody, but it does. It's still, again, it's still a well enough made film that it should ought to survive without, you yeah. know, without having those reference points necessarily. It's still a very, very well made film. So I would hope that it does. Yeah. What I quite like too is that, particularly for the Cornetto trilogy, which is uh, that was a retroactively applied thing by fans, but. Within that, there, there are little bits of reward for that work as jokes on their own if you've only seen the film in isolation, but actually kind of a reference to other films in it, particularly the fences that pop yeah. up again in The World's End. And there's just wee touches like that. Again, it works as a bit of humour on its own. Like we've seen the incredibly capable Nicholas Angel vaulting over fences, but you realise, oh, it's a reference to Shaun of the Dead. Um, and then it, as I say, it comes back in the world's end, and just—it's not overloaded. You could go too heavy on that quite easily. Yeah, but it's just—it's more like an Easter egg almost for just little callbacks. Yeah, just—they're quite subtle, and because they work on their own anyway, it's they work. There's quite there's one or two things like that. And I really like that. That you could, you could really hammer too heavily on that and be too self-indulgent. Mm. Yeah, but they're not. It's and Hot Fuzz is just and just such a great film. What's next? Am I next? Yes, changing pace a little bit with Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah, the first of his sort of big budget American efforts then. At the age of 30, I already felt painfully out of sync with the protagonists of Scott Pilgrim versus the world when I watched it in the cinema, even if the video game aesthetic flourishes seemed oddly targeted at an older audience. I was worried that returning to it some 10 years later would achieve nothing so much as to reaffirm my burgeoning sense of social irrelevance (laughs) and the realisation that I am now pretty much halfway through my life expectancy. Turns out I needn't have worried. Scott Pilgrim versus the world remains an exceptionally shallow, oh sorry, remains as exceptionally shallow now as it was then only the intervening decade has thrown into relief the suspicion I had at the time that it is in fact really really entertaining. If you've yet to see Scott Pilgrim, and based on the box office, that's a distinct likelihood, you should know that it is based on a graphic novel by Canadian author Brian Lee O'Malley and centres on the titular protagonist as he struggles through the pratfalls of dating a high schooler five years his younger while being infatuated with an enigmatic loner named Ramona Flowers. Informed by the cultures of video games, graphic novels and anime, Pilgrim's journey to presumed emotional fulfilment is beset by the need to best each of Ramona's seven evil exes in hyper-stylized combat. Cue the onomatopoeic captions. What I said at the time, and I know this because I went back earlier today actually and listened to our podcast from 2010, um, still holds true. I think Seven Evil Exes is at least a couple too many. <laughs> the overall pacing of the movie feels like it could do with smartening up a little. My fear that I would feel increasingly distanced from the material in my advancing years was, however, unfounded. It turns out that Scott's interaction with his world and the characters in it remains fresh and amusing as it was at the time of release. 
In particular, Michael Serra's performance as Michael Serra is peak Michael Serra. <laughs> and certainly among the finest interpretations of the character Michael Serra we have seen, Michael Serra or otherwise. People's criticism to Michael Serra? I don't know, but people's criticism of Serra and actors of that ilk in general baffles me somewhat. If anything, you've less to worry about because you know exactly what to expect going in. And if you don't like Michael Serra, the news is you're not going to like this movie. <laughs> don't, don't rent it. There, I saved you a fiver. If you're a director and the character you're hoping to portray is essentially Michael Serra, then guess what the best tool is for that job? That's right, Michael Serra. It's like criticising a world-class sniper for having... <laughs> It's like criticising a world-class sniper for being predictable in their choice of the same high-powered rifle each time they get deployed. <laughs> Have you tried this spud gun with the extended barrel and custom spring mechanism? No thanks, I think I'll take my usual gun. Did I mention I call it Michael Serra? <laughs> In retrospect, Scott Pilgrim has a most excellent cast of young supporting actors, a number of them right at the tipping point of their careers. I've developed a real soft spot for Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the intervening years. I've even rewatched that Terrible Thing remake, and I keep waiting for her to be allowed the opportunity she clearly deserves, rather than the status she's attained as some sort of Swiss army knife among actors. Here she straddles the gulf between enigmatic, desirable and vulnerable admirably, though, in terms of pound-for-pound impact, the show should surely must belong to Kieran Culkin as Wallace, Mm. Scott's wonderfully incorrigible gay roommate. It helps that the cast is working from a script that has its fair share of zingers and amusing non-secretors. And while I'm not going to advocate for it attaining some sort of preservation status, I would like to direct your attention to the fact that it contains the line, you were once a vegan and now you will be gone, (laughs) which is in itself infinitely better than most things. (laughs) How much of that kind of dialogue is carried wholesale from the source material, I do not know, but if not O'Malley himself, then surely a medal is deserved of right and his co-writer Michael Bacall. Not that this is a film I'd want to revisit too frequently, mind you. I don't think sustained repeat viewing would do the stage curtains any favours. If a movie can succeed almost entirely on surface appeal, however, then this is surely it. I suspect your mileage may vary somewhat based on your exposure to or preference for gaming culture of a fairly narrow generational window, but it turns out we three are exactly the same age as O'Malley, and I suspect this might play heavily into it. I shall be intrigued to revisit this in 2030. (laughs) Yeah, I I had... Um, no, I've no, I have no idea what I had. Apparently, I didn't have it that strongly. <laughs> a brain fart. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had the the feeling, and if you've just listened to the podcast, you can tell me if I'm correct. Craig. The feeling I had that what I said at the time, because I remember not particularly liking this when I saw it in the cinema. You had you hadn't seen it at the time we recorded the podcast. I don't know. Okay, no, um, no. I, I kind of had the feeling that I didn't like it that much, um, which I thought was a bit strange because we were so absolutely the target audience for this. Mm. This was our generation of gaming, you know, and it was, um, and I didn't particularly care for it. Whereas, I've seen it a couple of times just in the last couple of years again, and I find that while it's not as good a film as Hot Fuzz, it's honestly challenging Hot Fuzz simply for pure entertainment value for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To the point where it's like it's not there's really not that much between them. It's not a deep film, but none of Edgar Wright's films are deep. But they're not quite confections, but they're not like weighty things or anything. But 
So there's a lot of surface appeal in this, and, and that's fine. I don't necessarily expect a lot more from him. But I, I just I found this thoroughly entertaining, and mm. I like Michael Sarah. That helps because, as you say, he's, he's Michael Sarah. I think the only time he's not be Michael Sarah is in This Is the End when he turns up to play Michael Sarah, the dick Michael Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, maybe the last time I saw Michael Sarah, come to think of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you might be wrong there, yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, I think it's it did suffer in terms of its box office because it does have quite a narrow appeal. I mean, yeah, I know gaming is such big business now, it's so common. But for a lot of the games that this references, it's when it was a much more niche activity. So I think it perhaps suffers for that a bit. But uh, This is what I think the problem is with it, Drew. And I do wonder that my experience of it initially, because I did quite enjoy it initially by by all accounts based on what <laughs> what we spoke about in the podcast, but I wonder if your experience is the same, that, yeah, the that sort of overlay of the, the video game aesthetic is relevant to people our age, but it was... And it was marketed largely on that as well, I think. Mm-hmm. However, and I wonder if that's informed our expectations going in, because actually it's a film about the social mores of a generation sort of 10 years younger than us and mm-hmm. their interactions largely. And I wonder if that initially that's been the disappointment, if anything, has been that, oh, right, okay, maybe I don't relate so much as to the people in this. Bizarrely, you've got 20-somethings interacting with a world that is informed by the visual aesthetic of 30-somethings, if that makes sense. And my experience of going back and watching this again recently was that actually having put some distance between that has almost narrowed the gap on somewhat, and I kind of even enjoyed it more this time, if that... Does that make sense? I guess so. And I know what you're saying about the culture thing too, because I remember... Um, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist which Michael Sarah also starred in which was just a couple of years before this I think um, and was very aware watching that, it's like yeah this is a generation after me and it felt quite different whereas yeah, like the stylings are for a generation but the content isn't so I don't know why that doesn't bother me now but it's just a, it's a really entertaining film um, and just to go back to the visual stylings too, this may be um, peak comedy editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the match cuts and the scene transitions in this are amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, yeah. They, they, so they tell a story and they're funny. I don't even think I appreciated them enough at the time, Drew. No, I think I, I only really that. appreciated it this time round. I definitely didn't, but yeah, watching them this time, it's like, yeah, they're really good. Hmm. Only other thing I'll say before I finally let Scott talk is uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll let him do it every now and then. Uh, I'm kind of on board with your opinions of Mary Elizabeth Winstead too I I want her to have more to do I like her, I I do find her likeable from the first time I remember seeing her in Die Hard 4 and Mm. I very recently watched her in Gemini Man and she does as much as she can with what she's given but she's not given enough and it's quite frustrating I don't feel she ever is I don't feel she's ever been stretched as an actor although she's done some sort of um, smaller independent stuff that I need to catch up with Drew um, but there's always this really frustrating thing of why isn't why isn't she bigger? Why isn't she the Scarlett Johansson of that generation kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's frustrating. I, I do feel she has the ability, and this may be the the best time she's ever usually had to 
to show what she's got. Just not enough people got to see it. The thing we make is definitely not it, because... (laughs) Definitely. She's probably still the best thing in it. It's a a prequel. It's totally not. It's a second remake, but only the first (laughs) remake's the one that anybody should bother with. Yes. um, And now, Scott. (laughs) Yeah, um, as best as I can remember, I liked this back in the time. You did. Back in the day. You did. Um, I know it's probably open to accusations of style over substance, but... When there's this much style, it's hard to care too much. Um, I think I've completely forgotten about it in the, the ten years. I don't think it's ever crossed my mind once in the intervening time since recording that podcast. So it was quite a quite a pleasant surprise to come back to it this time round and liked it quite a lot as well. It does feel less essential than other rights, other films, I think. It, it feels a bit more flyaway. But it's hard to care too much about that when it is this funny because it is Mm. as you mentioned just really really entertaining it's a visual treat and it's very funny all the way throughout and I think all of the cast is great I don't think there's a single tough note in there Um, everyone plays parts really really well Uh, it's a very strong supporting cast and I think Michael Cena plays a blinder in it so yeah there's an awful lot to like in here and almost nothing to dislike unless you just can't get your head around the aesthetic, which I presume is something that yeah. quite a lot of people won't be able to do. It is a bit strong. Yeah, I suspect it'll be a turn-off for as many people as it will be a, a, a positive. Yeah, um, but I think obviously we're all on board with that, and I think if you can get over that hurdle, then there's an awful lot of joy to be had in this, and it certainly deserves to be It deserved to be a hit, not a flop. Um, and I, I, I can't quite understand how it flopped so badly um, when it is this funny but uh, well that's that's the business for you what well, what's the status of this now has it has it achieved cult status yet because it feels like it should have done and i i noted in that review way back 10 years ago that i felt like it was probably the kind of film that was destined to become that if if you can have uh, you know a cult film adorned with this kind of budget but i don't know i don't know what people's opinion of this is now i've got no frame of reference for that i know people again just uh, the same sort of group of other podcasters that i mentioned earlier I know they really like this um, I think people like Edgar Wright like this but outside of people that like Edgar Wright I don't think it's that well known mm. which is which is a real shame yeah the only thing this is really missing to, honestly that would elevate it to the status of something like a hot fuzz is that I don't think it's I, I think it lacks the emotional engagement I think it I don't and I don't know if that's just a generational thing but I didn't feel that invested emotionally in any of the characters you know for example in hot fuzz uh, not in hot fuzz sorry um, in Shaun of the Dead in particular there's this there's this element that crops up now and again where you realise that you actually really have connected with these characters where amongst all the mayhem and all the stupid stuff that's going on there's that bit towards the end where Simon Pegg says, I don't think I could kill my mum and my best friend in the same day. Yeah. And it kind of punches you in the chest a little bit emotionally. You weren't expecting it. And I don't think this or the other sort of big Hollywood um, production that we'll talk about um, soon uh, have have that layer to them. Yeah, but th- it almost does succeed just purely on an aesthetic level. But I can see why, like Scott said, that would be you know as, as much of a turn-off as it would be a positive for some people. Yeah, the the Cornetto Challenge in particular really have heart. Yeah. And um, when we covered the final film with Tom today um, a couple of years ago, while I enjoyed it a lot, one of my criticisms was that it lacked heart. Mm. This is a bit the same. I think it's not as, quite as much to this film's detriment as it is to Baby Driver, so because it's mm-hmm. not really about that. It doesn't 
Yeah. Um, it's it's all fairly shallow, but all these people are fairly shallow. They're like, you know, so between 17 and 23, they're, none of this, this relationship are led to mean all that much. You know, it's all, and the way they talk and uh, things, it's all fairly surface level anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much to its detriment, but it's still weird why this didn't do more. <laughs> mm. And one thing also, I somehow managed to forget Mary Elizabeth Winstead in 10 Cloverfield Lane, in which she's excellent. So she is. My apologies for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. quite a significant yeah. role in a fairly popular film. Yes, the sort of thing that I feel like it should, there should be a lot more of. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Right, so let's wind up the Three Flavours Cornetto trilogy, Scott, with The World's End. It's the third part of the Cornetto cycle, uh, which sees a familiar cast of characters take on science fiction as an alien menace infiltrates Earth and starts replacing people to further their assumed-to-be-nefarious ends. How do we know all this? Well, Simon Pegg's Gary King and friends unwittingly stumble on the truth as they return to their childhood home, Newton Haven, in, unsurprisingly, a sleepy English town after 20-odd years. Their aim is to complete a 12-pub crawl of the town, which, although they weren't quite able to do back in the day, has nonetheless become an almost totemic part of Gary's personality and idealised as the best day of his life. The rest of his mates, Nick Frost, Sandy Knightley, Paddy Constantine's Stephen Prince, Martin Freeman's Oliver Chamberlain and Eddie Marson's Peter Page have all grown up and got on with their lives, but Gary's clinging to what he thinks of as the freedom of youth and he hopes to recapture that as well as reconnect with the friends he's drifted away from. However, because Gary's a grade A hole of the ass, he's got them all to agree to attend through a mixture of lies, coercion and manipulation that makes him a wildly unsympathetic protagonist, and one that's only slightly more relatable on repeat viewing, where his character's troubles can be factored in from the outset. On first watch, however, it's a fairly challenging first act, until the penny drops, the alien scheme begins to be uncovered, and the blue-blooded robot replicants start being burst apart. Now, I've not revisited this since its cinema release. Uh, unlike Shaun of the Dead, I don't think I've changed my opinion on it on repeat viewing. It's still very close to being insufferable for about half an hour before delivering a stellar hour of entertainment on the back end. I suppose a part of that initial inertia is to facilitate what's easily the darkest of characterisations of a protagonist's. Mm-hmm. Um, Penn's Sean and uh, Nick uh, have their problems to overcome, but they've not been driven to attempted suicide and alcoholism by the end. Uh, by, and Perhaps that's pushing it a little bit too far for what's ultimately a silly comedy where humanity is saved by being drunk and obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way. Uh, Still, the cast already mentioned, uh, alongside terrific additional support from the likes of Rosamund Pike, Pierce Brosnan and David Bradley, means that this delivers a ton of laughs. And although perhaps not the same highly compressed multitude of gags to reward repeat viewing, uh, maybe that's just me, uh, given the distance between last viewing and this one, perhaps I'm not best placed to comment. So this is my least favourite of the Cremettos, but it still comes highly recommended. Uh, Yes, what do you guys think of it? Um, okay, so I I watched this again a couple of years ago and I've not re-watched it for this uh, podcast purely because I didn't enjoy it all that much the first time round, very much for the reasons you said. I found the character characterisation quite challenging the first time round mm. um, and I didn't find the... I didn't find the resolution all that satisfying. I maybe didn't find as much entertainment as you have, Scott, in the in the back half of the movie. Um, so I did rewatch it again a couple of years ago because I thought, oh yeah, actually, this is one of those films that I've, maybe I've just been in the wrong mood when I initially watched it. Mm. Um, and I, I felt largely the same way about it the second yeah. time round, to be honest. I think it's easily the most disposable of... Um, of his works to date. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to be a big advocate for it. I would. 
I don't want to say I'm disappointed in it in terms of the Cornetto trilogy because again, the the, the Cornetto trilogy is just this thing which has been imposed by fans. Really, I don't know if has Wright gone on record to say that he always intended to make a trilogy of films in this vein. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, the yeah. Cornetto thing was, was certainly a byproduct. It was Cornetto's yeah. in the first couple of films, and then, then they forced if, him into the third one because it was like as yeah. a nod. But if if he if he intended a three film arc, then I think this would be a really disappointing um, conclusion to that. But I mean, I have so much goodwill for Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz that it's hard to it's hard to take too much umbrage with it. Um, and I dare say there will pe- be people who find it far more entertaining than I did, and more power to them. But oh. uh, I just didn't connect with this film the same way I did those. It's odd that I think that's. It, I think it's perhaps because it's trying to be one of the most grown up and give the characters more meat to their bones, certainly yeah. in terms of um, Peg's character. But that ultimately winds up being something of its undoing uh, because th- that doesn't fit the genre that it's supposed to be in. It would it would be solid if it was an actual drama where we're talking more about um, you know take over the earth. If this was actually the invasion of the body snatchers that this is kind of um narrowed around, that would be a great help to you know getting into his conflict. But when after that first half hour you're pulling arms off robots and beating them to death with the other end of it it's the the tones the totality doesn't quite mesh i don't i don't know that it's in right i don't this might not be i mean this is just one piece of evidence obviously but i don't know if this suggests that maybe that sort of serious characterization isn't necessarily in Wright's wheelhouse and that the sort of the gentle observation of character of the previous previous two films in the cycle sort of dovetails more nicely with the with the good humoured nature of them um, I don't know I don't know it certainly scans better in terms of the tone of the pieces that they're in but I don't think he's an incapable of it um, no. but yeah just that this perhaps isn't the venue for it but yeah. um, of the I've watched all of the films for this all of them again apart from Fistful of Fingers which was the first time I'd seen this was the film I was most looking forward to watching again for this podcast because it's probably the one I knew least well because I've yeah. watched Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz multiple times and I think possibly I enjoyed it somewhat less than I did the last time I watched it but I still really like it it seems like I like it more than either of you two it's certainly there, there's something to Scott's point that or possibly it's you, Scraper, or possibly both of you. I, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but the idea that this film can't necessarily support the the darkness of Simon Pegg's character in this. Um, there's a bit of a dissonance there between just how dark his backstory is um, mm-hmm. with the actual, you know, smashy, smashy Eggman. <laughs> but on the other side this film uses the phrase smashy smashy Eggman and the first time I heard that I laughed like a drain yeah. <laughs> um, that and Bermuda Rhombus and the Aquanazis which would be a great name for a band yeah it's I still really enjoy this um, <laughs> Bermuda Rhombus <laughs> And the Aquanazis, don't forget and the Aquanazis. <laughs> how could one forget? Yeah, but it's still full of that great editing and the visual storytelling. And so even like technically, it's still excellent. Yeah, um, I think that's the strongest part. Yeah, um, I don't recall finding the the first 30 minutes insufferable like Scott did. Um, although my usual 
general dislike for voiceovers. Actually, because it kind of stands it more with Edgar Wright's work than a lot of others because it's so seldom used. Yeah, he tends to let the visuals do the storytelling. So when they're like explaining the the Golden Mile pub crawl at the beginning and all that other stuff with um, narration, it's like oh, that's a bit disappointing. Uh, but yeah, it's it's still really funny though. And again, smashy smashy Eggman. <laughs> well, it may be amongst my favourite lines in any film ever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm not even joking. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if I, I would. Uh, if I would be as uh, strongly against that opening half hour as perhaps even uh, as Scott is, but I think. I think from my perspective, perhaps I've come into it with a set expectation of uh, of what the first half hour of an Edgar Wright movie should be, and then that's not necessarily Edgar Wright's fault um, that I can't cross that hurdle. Um, and I would. I think. Um, at least acknowledge that he's tried to do something different there and I think he should be applauded for that because probably the easiest thing for him to have done at that point, especially given the weight of expectation put on him by people essentially then, for what it sounds like forcing a third movie out of him um, (laughs) would be to have just reverted to type and not really have tried to do anything different, play it safe and just deliver another um, you know, copy and paste um, based on what he knows works from the first film so perhaps it's to his credit that he tried to challenge us a little bit more with character there but just for whatever reason personally it didn't didn't quite work yeah uh, so I, I remember like a bit more than the industry but I still like it and what I do like is it does have heart you yes. know you care about these characters in this case it's actually it's more Nick Frost is the real touching moment I think and mm. Gary King a bit but clearly Gary King's a pillock yeah, but when you find out about the accident that Nick Frost characters had, and it's like, ah, okay, that's a bit more significant. And then even like Eddie Marson's backstory as well. So there is a lot of kind of more adult, more introspective stuff in there than certainly you'd expect. Hmm. Uh, yeah, okay, so it's not as quite as satisfying, I think, as Shaun of the Dead or certainly not Hot Fuzz. Although on a first viewing, I enjoyed this more than I had enjoyed Shaun of the Dead on its first viewing. But uh, I, mean, I would happily sit down and watch any of these um, on the three Cornetto films any day, pretty much. Yeah, I think it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, it's not that if someone put a gun at my head, I would point blank refuse to watch this again and prefer to take the bullet. You know, it is still it is still objectively a good movie. Um, I think I just don't know that I felt it really achieved any of the highs of the of the previous two in that trilogy. But again. I don't, I don't. I think I went into this podcast thinking that I wasn't really all that fond of Edgar Wright as a director, that he wasn't really speaking to me. But then, if nothing else, just having you know gone back through a couple of these movies and then listening to your own opinions, I think I'm, I think I'm more down with him than I thought I was. So yeah, I'm rambling now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think he's done anything that I I dislike, but well, perhaps we'll get onto that as we. Ramble about Baby Driver. <laughs> Baby Driver. Eh? I came to this fresh a couple of nights ago. Um, the problem with mixtapes is that, generally speaking, the only people interested in them are the people making them. Those people fall into three categories. Those with really bad taste in music and don't know it. Those with some taste in music but who are really self-congratulatory about it. And those who are actually worth listening to, or as they are better known, DJs. <laughs> Baby Driver, which has been described accurately, as a mixtape with a movie attached to it, demonstrates nothing so much as that Edgar Wright falls firmly into the middle category. 
baby, Ansel Elgort. Is it Elgort? Is that how it's pronounced? I can't see any other way to pronounce that. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like that's trying to subtly trick me. Um, Damn you, Ansel. Uh, Anyway, baby, Ansel Elgort is a young man with mad skills behind the wheel, applying his trade as a getaway driver for criminal mastermind doc, Kevin Spacey, to whom he is indebted for a prior vehicular indiscretion. Baby has severe tinnitus as the result of a childhood accident that also claimed his parents' lives, but that's not nearly so important to the plot as the fact that it excuses his constant, socially ignorant use of assorted iPods to provide the movie's soundtrack. If Baby's insistence on being an obnoxious fanny gets on your nerves, you're not alone. Certain members of Doc's rotating crew of assorted criminal misfits find him pretty insufferable too. But as a viewer, it's okay because Baby looks after his elderly, deaf, wheelchair-bound adoptive dad. So, you know, he's sympathetic. Baby may be great behind the wheel and, as your music guy in the pub quiz team, but he is naive enough to believe that Doc means it when he says his debt is paid in full and he's free to get on with his life. Just as Baby is getting his shiz back on track and falling for diner waitress Deborah, Lily James, he gets dragged back into Doc's next big caper and things start to come apart at the seams for everyone involved. If a sound like Baby Driver annoyed me no end, that would be because it did. But here's the thing. For the first hour, it actually managed to win me over. Somehow, despite delivering a product geared to irritate me in so many ways, Edgar Wright actually... Edgar Wright actually managed to make a film that I was enjoying. The cast are pretty good across the board, charisma vacuum Elgort aside, and I was left baffled but also impressed that the likes of Jamie Foxx and John Hamm had accepted third fiddle roles in what was never likely to be a box office phenomenon. Hamm in particular gets bonus points for owning a haircut that probably ought not to work outside of a trailer park, (laughs) though it's Foxx who steals most of his scenes as a psychotic bats. Apparently, Wright wants everyone to know that this is a movie he had spent 20 years developing, which is a bold flex because you'd better be sure that anything you've spent that long on is pretty flawless. As it stands, Wright probably ought to have spent another 20 years figuring out what he wanted to do with the second half of the movie, because somewhere around the middle, it all kind of falls apart into something quite different. Where the first hour is all show and bravado, the cocky self-assured kid you kind of can't help but like, the second descends into often quite nasty B-movie territory that rounds out in a less than satisfying conclusion, including, bizarrely, a foot chase, where there really ought to have been a car chase. (laughs) Remember how this is being marketed as a car chase movie? Yes. It's got maybe three quarters of a car chase near the start, a half of one a bit further on, and... That's about it. There's also a cliched slasher movie, Rope-A-Dope, where a villain is presumed dead and magically reappears uh, for a final send-off, which just felt so completely out of place that I wondered if I hadn't momentarily nodded off and my wife put on one of the Halloween sequels instead. That foot chase, though, exhilarating stuff. (laughs) Perhaps most disappointingly, Wright doesn't even have faith in Baby himself, parading a series of character witnesses before a courtroom to remind you that he is a good boy, really. And, of course, his stunning girlfriend of a whole two days waits five years for him to be released from Chokey. I also spent a lot of time scratching my head over who within Doc's Enterprise turns out to be the redemptive good guy and the ultimate villain, but by this point, I don't think I really cared all that much. In spite of myself, I was really enjoying Baby Driver up to a point, and it surely says something that I didn't have to work too hard to set aside my complaints for an hour. I just wish that the movie I finished watching was the same one I had started. Yeah, I didn't see this on release. 
I remember trying to watch this, getting about half an hour into it, and then giving up on it at some point in the last couple of years. And this was actually the first time I've seen it all the way through, and I think I'm more or less in your boat. It, it's it's fine, um, but I can't bring get myself all that excited about it. It's got a lot of style, but it doesn't really have anything much to back it up. Um, some of the actions, the driving's good, but there's not enough of it, as you say. And uh, Baby's just not compelling enough as a character to kind of carry the rest of it. And, th- you know, the relationship with the, the girlfriend, as you say, is so slender um, that it's kind of hard to take it particularly seriously. At the same time, it's not a film, I think, that is really looking to be taken seriously. No. Uh, but then you kind of get into the question mark of then, what is it for? And I couldn't really answer that question. At the same time, um, while that would normally wind up with most uh, films being absolutely unwatchable, turns out it's easy enough to get through. Um, I enjoyed it well enough in spite of myself, again, perhaps just because of that cast who are, uh, as you say, just all doing phenomenally well. And at the end of it, I did feel a little bit unsatisfied. It's probably my least favourite of all the films we've talked about here today, including A Fistful of Fingers. Um, it, it, it's got a lot more um, style and professionality, um, but it doesn't have the same heart, actually, as, as his very earliest film, which is a strange position to find themselves in. But yeah, uh, I, I don't know if I can really recommend it, um, even though I thought it was okay in the ultimate um, analysis but yeah hard to recommend something that i just thought was okay yeah um i like this considerably more than either of you then i mm-hmm. i can't actually disagree with uh, most of either of your criticisms it's just that i enjoyed it a great deal more i i do remember my first viewing though being somewhat set on the wrong foot by expecting a comedy yeah which uh, yeah, is yeah, not yeah. A, 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 the same thing you were just saying about Edgar Wright in the last film, Craig, um, in some ways. In this one, I felt the same. as like, well, why should I expect this certain thing from Edgar Wright necessarily? Can you try other things, you know? Yeah, I, I think you're right, though, Drew. I think I, I think there is a sort of expectation that there will at least be a certain level of humour to it. But I, And I don't know that that is fair to expect that going in. But, you know, regardless, that's his reputation as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but I really do, yeah, the... The second half, it's uh, it, it feels more like it's Edgar Wright trying to do Tarantino in the second half, um, and it, he doesn't have the skills to do that, which is the problem. And the, the other criticism I have is, I say one we've seemed to all have to. There's no heart there, and also the relationship between Deborah and Baby doesn't work because again, it, it could it's believable enough that they would be get together just not that quickly. Um, yeah. You know, so that's a, a bit of a problem. And, yeah, the other big problem I had with this film is Ansel Elgott, and I don't find him insufferable. And the fact that he's sitting listening to his iPod while surrounded by criminals, weirdly enough, doesn't bother me. I don't <laughs> care that he's rude to them. They're criminals. <laughs> um, you, Are you neglecting the fact that he also is a criminal, though, Drew? <laughs> yes, but he's kind of been forced into this, Craig. I mean, that is true. I know he was a joyrider, but you know that's probably when he was like twelve years old or something. It's, you know, we've all we've all been there. Eh? I'll, I'll give him a pass on that. But yeah, the certainly weirdly enough, watching it though, um, just this afternoon, I didn't think so much about that end sequence. But 
when you started saying Craig Lockwood they're spelling out how good he is like yeah actually you're right that's quite heavy handed that's that was unnecessary oh it's so on the nose it's unreal uh, it, it's weird that that didn't follow me because that's all thing you usually would but uh, it didn't this time but when you mentioned it's like oh yeah yeah that was kind of dumb uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the the biggest problem is Baby Driver himself and I don't actually think it's Ansel Elgort uh, because I've not really seen anything else I can think of to um, compare. No, just, I was thinking this earlier. He's a total non-entity to yeah, me. I don't really know anything about him. He's so, such a non-entity in the song. He's so anonymous but that's the the way the character's written because he's written as this person who's so withdrawn and listening to his iPod all the time Um but because it isolates him so much from the rest of the world, it isolates him from the audience as well. Uh, and it's a failing in the script, I feel, rather than a failing in the acting there. I mean, maybe some other character would have been able to display a bit more charisma, but I really think the limitation is the script. The way that character is written, I'm not sure there's a lot you could do with it. Did this movie need Michael Cera? <laughs> <laughs> but it's... Um, there's a lot of like the technical stuff that I really like though the the matching of gunshots to the rhythm of music and there's bits like that really like get his technical stuff is really appealing. The, the, this is the absolute um, pinnacle of that thing he's been trying to do in other films on a scene by scene basis where he's trying to match the action to the rhythm of music Absolutely, and that's yeah. that's the one thing that he does succeed at that like every single gunshot in this in this film is is synced to the to the soundtrack. It's almost word for word what I said uh, when we did this back in. 2017 when I covered it then, Craig. Yeah, and that's really satisfying. And there, like, there are other little kind of technical flourishes in there too that that you don't. I don't think you realise it, but there's a hum of tinnitus through the entire film. It never goes away. Yeah, it starts with the Sony logo when it appears at the start of the film, mm-hmm. and it's not always obvious because no. it's been drowned out by the sound, but it's always there. And so, like, just wee touches like that, it's like. That I match the character and what's happening to him. Yeah. Unfortunately, every film's like that for me, so it doesn't really have the same <laughs> yeah. impact. I'm not sure what the value of that is, though. Uh, maybe. I just think it fitted the character and I, I appreciated that. Yeah, but I still really enjoy this. It's not brilliant, but it's very enjoyable. It's very well produced. Um, I guess this is what you were talking about earlier, though, you're saying the general just being somewhat used element doing American stuff. Whereas, like, the, he seems to really know the British milieu um, a bit better. Oh, that's the thing, though. That's and I think that's what confused me so much about this is that yes, if this was just out off the success of his other films, Hollywood had come knocking on his door and said, "Right, okay, we we need you to make this before we let you do another one of your little um, English movies with a decent budget or whatever." Then I could understand that, but. It's the fact that he's he himself has said this is something that's been sitting in my head for 20 years. It's just something doesn't really register there. And it's all based on... And that first... The movie starts with that sort of bank heist opening, right? And you know how it's supposed to... The, the whole setup is that thing of that scene of him sitting in the car and tapping the outside of the car and stuff to the rhythm of the music in his head. So that whole scene just didn't work for me. That was really annoying, and I think that was actually one of the worst edited scenes in the film. It came across as really unnatural and really forced, and it's all off the back of have you have you seen have you seen the music video he directed for Mint Royale that is basically the the sort of the first pass at this. No, right. Yeah. So he. He'd, yeah, you've seen it, Scott. Yeah. So he he directed a music video for Mint Royale, and I can't remember what track it was, Drew, but it's it's blue something or other. 
And basically, it's Noel Fielding as a getaway driver. And I think, is Nick Frost in it, Scott? Yes, I believe so. Yes. So there's no in this film. There is, yeah. So when he's flicking through the TV channels, yeah. there's a quick shot of Noel Field in there. So he directed this music video for Mint Royale, and everybody lost their shit for it. And I don't know why, because I've watched that, and there is nothing special about that video whatsoever. It's Noel Fielding sitting in a car, tapping his hands in time to music <laughs> for three minutes, and yeah. that's it. <laughs> I don't understand what the big deal is. I think I have seen that, but to be honest, I'm right. more irritated that it was Noel Fielding existing. Which is, yeah, uh, exactly. I care for. It sticks in my Craw that it sticks in my craw that no fielding is a part of that because it's, yeah because it's no fielding and that seems to be it was at a point at which off the back of the mighty bush and stuff I think that people were just in love with no fielding in general so for whatever reason he was he was sort of had plaudits piled on him for this completely innocuous music video that as far as I'm concerned shows no creativity or sort of technical merit whatsoever beyond the fact that he had someone tapping their hands to the same beat as some music here's the news, I could do that tomorrow in in iMovie myself It's weird though because he does actually do well in this film, it does work It does work work in a broader context of the film and I can't remember where I was going by piling on this music (laughs) video but I think if, if, so that initial scene, it, it just doesn't work. I don't think it works and I think it's just a big misstep that this is sort of a passion project for him that has been, I think, completely misdirected and certainly the second half of the script does not bear out and you hit the nail on the head, Drew, where he thinks he's making a Tarantino movie certainly in the second half of this Mm -hmm. film and it just doesn't sit with the material we're used to for Edgar Wright and I don't believe that this is something, I believe that the first half of this movie is something that he had in his head for 20 years but I do not for one minute believe he knew what he was doing with the second half until he got the funding for this and then actually had to sit down and write it out because it sort of devolves into this sort of like really sort of nasty violent movie that completely betrays the first half and for all the for all the stuff that I really wasn't on board with in the first half there was something about the story and the prospect of this being a really well choreographed technical exercise and even some flourishes in that first initial kind of half a car chase that we get that meant I was sort of going into the second half of this movie looking forward to what the culmination of that was going to be mm-hmm. and you can tell that he's been influenced by Tarantino in the dialogue, you know Kevin Spacey's line about oh he's got a hum in the drum and all this, it was all very self aware and very smart arse kind of dialogue going on but I kind of bought into it and it kind of won me over and I thought actually yes I want to see how this works out and all right, okay, so Tarantino apparently, and again, this is not something that I completely understand, but everybody lost their shit about how Tarantino was using licensed music to drive to drive film scores and stuff, as if that was something that had never been done before. <laughs> and he's bought into that wholesale, and I just, I don't know what it is, but I just think it's a week. The second half of this movie just felt weak. It felt like it completely undercut what happened in the first half. I don't understand that John Hamm was kind of, his character was set up as being somewhat sympathetic towards Baby, but he turned out to be the bad guy. Kevin Spacey in the first half of this movie is obviously a complete asshole who who lies to Baby and who draws him back into this life of crime and threatens to kill everybody that he loves if he doesn't do the job for him. Yet in the last 10 minutes of this film, he's this he's massive redemptive character. Yeah. Those two felt the wrong way round for me. I felt I knew that John Hamm was going to be the character who gave him the out and who was who maybe knew that he was he was going to end up dead but sort of that his last his last act of redemption might be at giving baby a second shot at having a successful life and it just felt like a really weird switch um yeah. 
It, it just felt like an idea that was in search of a second half, to be honest. It certainly doesn't make sense the way those characters went. It's like, was he trying to subvert our expectations? Which is a very much a, a <laughs> of the now phrase. But Yeah, um, and there would be nothing wrong with doing that, but I just, because... It <sighs> doesn't make any sense in the that context, though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, is it a contextual thing? Am I right about that? Because there's also no argument, there is an argument to be said that if it had played out the way I expected, that might just be lazy script writing but I feel like at that point in the movie Drew if I'm like right okay I feel like this has been set up for this it just feels dishonest to switch on that as opposed to satisfying to let it play out the kind of the yeah. way that I thought it was going I mean certainly set up there's um, Elsa Gonzalez's character says that when they're sitting in the diner says to Bats like um, basically if you you've never seen Buddy angry if you get him angry, yes. it's never going to stop. Yeah, um, and I had actually forgotten how he dispatched Batsy, the Jamie Foxx character. Yeah, so I kind of I'd forgotten that, and so I thought, oh, he's going to uh, it's going to be John Hammond takes care of him. Yeah, and it wasn't, but the fact that they then so from that point of view, then because they've set that up, they've had her say that. Yeah, I something expected John Hamm to kind of take the father role. Yeah, but then something happens to her, and he's like, because yes, yeah, he seems sympathetic and interesting and interested in Baby before then. Yeah, but the fact that um, Monica dies, and so he's going to basically lose his mind, go mad. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. They've set yeah. that up, but it's the whole Kevin Spacey character doesn't yeah. make sense. That's what bothers me more because that hasn't been earned. Well, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't make any sense because he's basically forcing this person to work for him. Yeah, um, half an hour before he's threatened to break his legs yeah, and kill everybody that he loves. Here you go, have a bag of money. And he's already shown by killing the Korean guy um, just before, um, towards the start of the film, that, or at least being involved in his death. That uh, He's absolutely ruthless. Yeah, and he says also, yeah, but you have to go and dispose of this body. So it's like, yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense, that. Um, and it, bother, it does bother me, that second half, that it's the violence bothers because the violence doesn't fit with the start of the film. Yeah. At least, had it been, for instance, Jamie Foxx's character is the one violent person and he's because he's always afraid of him. Yeah. Okay, but the fact that everybody gets violent at the end, it's, it's, you're right, it's like a completely different film. Yeah, if Jamie Foxx had been the danger, I could have seen that because there was, at that point, halfway through the film, you're like, okay, there's this really ominous sense of foreboding building up because Jamie Foxx's character is clearly unhinged and he really doesn't care about killing anybody. And there's the insinuation that he's thinking about killing Deborah in that yeah, scene in the he's restaurant. going to kill her just because he doesn't want to pay the bill. Yeah, and John Hamm, yeah, exactly. And John Hamm makes some comment about the fact that, listen, you're doing this, this, and this, and I've got to worry about this Bats guy. Um, and it's like, okay, okay, that's getting ta- taken care of in the background. You know, um, John Hamm's character knows what Jamie Foxx's character is all about, and there's going to be some sort of really satisfying resolution there. Not nothing whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's the fact that the baby takes care of him I actually really quite like because that's unexpected yeah. but he realises a danger to him yes then, it's like, almost it's almost him shaping up and at some point realising the situation he's in and there's only one way out of it but then if like John Ham's like oh well well done kid I don't have to do that then that's great yeah, it's, it's a bit disjointed for something he's apparently been working on for 20 years um, and I, again I still really do enjoy it silly far more than either you or Scott but it does make me think that maybe he should have kept that to himself there's something, Scott, maybe you can remind me because I can't think what it is, but a film we talked about really recently where it had been like a passion project for a director and they'd probably been working on for 30 years, but I think we both kind of felt that, yeah, basically he'd been kind of noodling on it. Every Wasn't it Mrs. Then. Brown's Boys, the movie? <laughs> <laughs> 
I pretend that I think doesn't exist because I'm prepared to think anything to do that television film I'm off, your, I'm off your Christmas card list now, aren't I? <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you remember what that film was called. It was quite recent, but it feels like maybe this is something like that, that... Yeah, it's an idea he had 20 years ago and had vague notions of doing it for 20 years. Yeah. It's not the same as working on it for 20 working, years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wish you could think what that film was, but it was very recent too. Was it something you discussed on one of the podcasts? Yeah, that's why I'm asking if Scott remembers. It was something really quite recent and like it had been a, a very, allegedly a passion project for the director, but actually felt more like maybe he'd done it in his off time every now and then. It wasn't Don Quixote, was it? <laughs> no, because no. that one actually felt like something that somebody had been working on in you mm. from Lost in La Mancha. No, maybe it was uh, something to do with James Cameron somehow, but I can't think what it would be. But it's annoying. A little battle angel, maybe. But anyway, yes. Yeah, like I, I don't believe that Edgar Wright was waiting twenty years to make this. It's maybe like he had the idea twenty years ago and yeah, never really got to do it. He made a music video out of it and had some ideas about how he would spin that out. <laughs> it is absolutely a little battle angel. Yeah. yeah, sure. I'm just checking our, our, our very own website. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it suffers quite as much from that because it's not as strong an idea as Alita Battle Angel should have been. Mm. Oh, sorry, Battle Angelita. It still annoys me they changed the name. It's stupid. Battle Angelita. <laughs> but yes, um, it's like, keep that to yourself unless you know you are something spectacular. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, you kind of sound foolish. Yeah, I have all sorts of comments I want to make about this and I wrote them down earlier and then I deleted them because I realised they just sounded obnoxious because they were basically piling on Edgar Wright for his choice of music as well <laughs> I think um, going back to the mixtape thing I know that's a criticism that's been levelled at a minutes and, and I actually think it's justified but I had all sorts of specific um, specific thoughts on his choices that I realised really in terms of I, w- I was being picky about him in terms of his... <laughs> <laughs> what what I perceived to be his musical education as opposed to what I actually would know would be his musical education, which would be absolutely zero. And in the context of him then applying that to a big budget mainstream movie, where I think I was perhaps being unrealistic in my expectations. So I decided to shut up about that because I would have come across as being an obnoxious dick myself, if I haven't already. I'm not sure if that stunning silence after that was comment or not. <laughs> I was a bit worried by it, to be honest with you, yeah, but there you go. Yeah, um, I guess we're finally finished our discussion there. It's got once well, if, no- if nothing else, it's engendered some discussion, hasn't it? Yeah, one little bit of feedback on Twitter uh, from our friend Blake Wrights from the sadly on hiatus, possibly demised I Am The Host podcast. I think Wright's work is casual viewing, poppy and memorable, but ultimately as disposable as most pop comedies. But within that track, his best traits are probably his writing, visual style, the acting talent you can identify drawing, and his brisk, frenetic sense of comic timing. Scott Pilgrim did an amazing job bringing the comic's chiptune aesthetic to life and handling the source material with care. Same goes for the zombie and action genres. There's love for his subjects there, and I certainly agree with that. I just doubt whether he has too much insight critique to offer. Um, I don't disagree, although I'm not sure he necessarily needs to have insight or critique. Um, it's not always necessary. But, yes, uh, thank you for your feedback, Blake. Appreciate it. Uh, one thing before we go. Always hard to work out exactly how much of his work remains and things that he was previously attached to that then went on to Pastures New, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I watched that Tintin film a while back and enjoyed yeah. it quite a bit at the time. It's quite um, good, actually. It was all right, yeah. And uh, also Ant Man, I rewatched again just to watch it, and I think I think a lot of his work has survived into that. Or if not, if yeah. not, Peyton Reed was um, 
keeping in line with what uh, Edgar had written because it does feel very righty. There See, are there I are totally saying, moments in that. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember saying that at the time when we did Ant Man in this podcast, Scott, mm-hmm. um, that it, there were loads of bits in that that felt really pay, uh, really. Edgar Wright, but actually I was very, very surprised to find that there were bits that were from Peyton Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether he's building on something that was already in the script uh, and the, the pre-production or not, I don't know. Uh, but certainly there, there are bits in there that feel really, really Edgar Wright-like. It's like, oh, actually, there were Peyton Reed. So, mm. Regardless, it's, so, it's an awful lot of fun to watch uh, anyway. So yes. Yes. yes, 100%. And I guess that'll wrap us up for today. Thank you all very much for your attention. We'll be back in short order. But until next time, take care of yourself and each other. I'll say goodbye, and I'm sure that Drew and Craig will do too. Bye-bye. Fairly well. Bye.